Last week, as we looked at 1 Corinthians, we heard Paul calling the church to take a very painful step. They were to put out of the fellowship a church member who was living a sinful lifestyle. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a passage about church discipline. And as we looked at that passage, we thought about church discipline not just in its final stages, when someone is put out of membership for unrepentant sin. We saw that church discipline is simply about Christians doing what they ought to do and have committed to do. It's about living for Jesus. And we notice there are actually several levels of church discipline. It starts for every single one of us with self-discipline, personal, daily recommitment to live in obedience to God and turning back to him when we sin, as we do. Then we saw that if that self-discipline breaks down, then other church members who become aware of our sin may get involved to call us back to obedience. And it's only when someone remains unyieldingly unrepentant all through those phases of discipline, it's only then that we eventually arrive at the stage which was described in chapter 5. When the church body has to say it can no longer affirm the person's claim that they belong to Jesus. And if we put chapter 5 in the context of that much wider meaning of church discipline, then we will be able to see, I hope, how chapter 6 fits into the picture. If chapter 5 deals with the final step, chapter 6 deals with the earlier stages. Now, as we'll see, Paul addresses in chapter 6 some fairly outrageous things that were going on in the church. But as he deals with those issues in chapter 6, he doesn't call for the people doing these things to be put out of the fellowship. That might surprise us after chapter 5. But chapter 6 just proves that chapter 5 is a last resort. Paul calls the individuals and he calls the church body around them to do what they ought to do. In other words, even though these are serious things and Paul has stern things to say, he's hopeful these things can be sorted out. We're not yet at the stage where the people involved need to be put out of the fellowship. If they respond well to the challenge of this chapter, that will not have to happen. This morning we're going to look at just the first part of chapter 6, where Paul deals with church conflict. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to read just the first 11 verses. It's page 1147, or if you're using the larger print Bibles, 1775. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? 
Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you wear. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's Word. And it teaches us two things. The church has the responsibility and ability to honor God in dealing with our disagreements and in dealing with our desires. First, in verses 1 to 6, the church has the responsibility and ability to honor God in dealing with our disagreements. Now, the specific situation here needs a bit of explaining. Verse 1 says, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? And verse 6 shows us this is not just a hypothetical situation, it's actually going on. One brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So church members who have some sort of grievance with each other are taking their grievance to a secular court to have it resolved. What kind of grievance or dispute are we talking about here? Well, these are not criminal issues. This is not to do with breaking the law of the land. How do we know that? Because in another place, Romans chapter 13, Paul deals with criminal offenses. He says God has put governments in authority to deal with those matters. Paul would not object to criminal offenses being dealt with in the criminal courts. So here he's speaking about what we would call civil disputes. No law has been broken. Two people are in a dispute over a non-legal matter. And that's significant because it means this passage cannot be used, for example, to justify dealing with a matter of sexual abuse quietly in the church. Sexual abuse breaks the law. And so whatever else the church has to do about it, it most certainly has to report it to the authorities. Another example would be embezzlement. When Megan and I lived in Chicago, we were members of a church where the pastor was caught 
stealing church funds. It was money that had been given specifically to help people in need. And the elders of that church realized they were dealing with a crime that they had to report. And in the end, that man did go to prison. I know of another example where a dishonest building contractor was working his way around different churches. He was making contacts with church members, and then he was taking advantage of them. That was a crooked business scheme. And again, when church leaders in the area spoke to one another and realized what was going on, they rightly reported that contractor to the police. So as we think about what this passage means, we can also be clear in our minds what it does not mean. We're not talking about criminal matters here. The church is not being called to deal with those matters in-house. This is about non-criminal disputes. And Paul says to the church, why on earth would Christians take those disputes to a secular court? Why take them before the ungodly? Paul thinks that's ridiculous. And here's why in verse 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Before Christmas, in our Table Talk series, we looked at the Bible's teaching on the new heaven and earth. And we saw that God's people will, in some sense be co-regents with God himself. We will be under his sovereign authority, but still we will be given genuine responsibility and authority. So just to give you a few examples where that is stated, in Revelation chapter 3, the church is told by Jesus Christ, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And in terms of this role of judging the world, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. One final example from the book of Jude in the New Testament. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The holy ones there seems to be a reference to God's people we will somehow play a part in the judgment of the world at the end of the age. And as Paul mentions here in our passage, apparently that will include the judgment of rebellious angels. It's an amazing thing to think about. It's a big topic. But Paul mentions it not to satisfy our curiosity about what exactly it's going to involve. Paul mentions it here to show if the church is going to participate in such monumental matters as these, surely 
it has the competence to sort out much more mundane matters, personal disagreements in the church. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the church is destined to do this great thing in the future, then it's certainly capable of doing this much lesser thing in the present. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we can figure out a solution to our personal conflicts. The same Holy Spirit who will enable us then and the future is already with us now. So we can do it, and we have the responsibility to do it. Look at verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, that's everyday things, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Verse 4 is difficult to translate, but the sense seems to be those outside the church do not have the Spirit of God or the wisdom of God. Paul spoke about that in chapters 1 and 2. And therefore, their way of life is scorned in the church, or their outlook carries no weight in the church. And so Paul says, why would you imagine those people can do a better job than Christians when it comes to solving disputes? And this is not just about those outside the church being less qualified. It's also about the church's witness to those outside. As Christians, we should never pretend that we're perfect people. But the New Testament does call us new creations in Christ. And we're not giving much evidence of that if we can't resolve our disputes with one another. That announces there's really nothing different about us at all. Now, you might wonder if this is really relevant to us. And probably it is quite rare for church members to take one another to court. It's not unheard of, but it is rare. But notice the main point here is not the involvement of the outside courts. It's the church's responsibility to deal with our disagreements. And until Jesus comes back, there will be disagreements in the church. They might be caused by personality differences, maybe differences of background and upbringing, differences of taste and preference, differences even in the way we understand certain controversial parts of the Bible. Until Jesus comes back and we are perfected people with perfected wisdom and understanding, there will be disagreements among us. So the problem is not so much the disagreements themselves, it's how we deal with them. Do we deal with them remembering our great destiny of judging the world? 
Do we approach our differences remembering the same Spirit of God who will equip us for that great task is already among us now? And he will equip us for this much lesser task of dealing with our differences in a God-honoring way. So, for example, when that brother or sister seems to blank you, just turn away from you after church. Or if you think someone's talking about you behind your back, do you automatically assume that was a deliberate attempt to snub you? Do you walk in the other direction fuming at their lack of love? Or do you go and speak to them? Not assuming the worst, but open to the possibility you've misunderstood them. Or that if they really did snub you, you can resolve the problem because you're two people who share the same spirit of Christ. And what if the issue wasn't just a perceived slight, like turning away? What if it was a clear snub to you or some other obvious offense? Aren't we called to take the same approach? In Matthew chapter 18, didn't Jesus say, go to the brother or sister? We looked at that in home groups last week. Go to them. Don't walk away and nurse your bitterness. Go to the person and go to them with confidence. The brothers and sisters in Christ can resolve things. The spirit who is in you both is greater than the spirit who is in the world. And even if the initial conversation doesn't go well, it's still not time to despair. Others in the church can help you and your brother or sister. God has given us his Holy Spirit and the body of believers around us to help us deal with our differences in a God-honoring way. Our dispute doesn't have to turn rotten. It doesn't have to create a long-term breach in our relationships. We have supernatural resources to deal with our conflict. When God tells us that in his word, we have to take him at his word. Maybe we can't resolve things with our work colleagues. Maybe we can't manage it with our relatives. But we can manage it in the church. The church is different. It truly is different. And you and I must approach our conflicts with confidence that the church is different. So don't go quiet. Don't go underground, nursing anger. Go to your brother or sister. And if a brother or sister comes to you and they think you've done them wrong, it's obvious they've misunderstood you and they come at you in a clumsy, unhelpful way, don't lash back. Don't give as good as you get. Remember, this can be sorted out. It doesn't have to spiral downwards. The church has the responsibility and ability to honor God in dealing with our disagreements and in dealing with our desires. 
what Paul is going to do in verses 7 to 11 is to dig down into this a bit deeper. He wants to get at what, is, what it is that drives our disagreements and conflicts. Or rather, what drives our failure to sort out our disagreements and conflicts. Why is it we find it so hard? A few weeks ago, I was listening to a rugby game on the radio. And at the end of the game, the commentator was highlighting two players on opposing teams. Those two guys had been in a personal battle for the whole game. And the commentator said, neither of them took a backward step. In other words, they didn't give an inch for the whole 80 minutes. Now, in a rugby game, that's impressive. But in a dispute between Christians, it's a problem. One of the things we know about the civil courts in Corinth is that they were corrupt, deeply corrupt. Historians tell us that verdicts in those courts could be bought and sold. And so when these Christians were taking one another to court, it was not because they just wanted a fair verdict. No, it showed they had a win-at-all-costs mentality. The drive to win had become all-consuming for them. And so they weren't aiming for reconciliation anymore. They just wanted personal victory. And they knew if they paid enough, the courts would give them a personal victory. But look how Paul challenges that attitude in verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. In other words, you think the way to win is never to take a backward step to do whatever it takes for victory. But that attitude, Paul says, that determination to win at all costs, to have the last word, can't you see that means you've already lost? Even if the court ends up giving you what you want, you've lost. Because that desire to win at all costs motivates you to misrepresent the other person to assume the worst about their motives, to treat minor offenses like they're major ones. That desire to win makes you cheat and do wrong. Far better, Paul says, to take a backward step. Far better not to have the last word. Far better to lose the argument than to win it and destroy your relationship with that brother or sister. And maybe destroy the witness of the church too among those who are watching. The Corinthians' desire to win was overcoming their desire to see harmony and unity in the church. And so let's ask ourselves, what about me? What about you? When it comes to disagreements, and we all have them. If you haven't had one yet, you will. 
when it comes to those conflicts that arise, are we willing to take a bit of personal loss for the church's gain? Are we willing not to have our way or not to come out on top in an argument so that the fellowship as a whole can win? Now, don't get me wrong, this is not a call to just suck up every wrong that's ever done to us. The message here is not that we have to be quiet. The aim of verses 1 to 6 is a proper resolution of things. The aim is to resolve the conflict, not to bury it and bottle it up. But here, Paul is saying, what if all the efforts have been made to resolve things properly. You've gone to the person, maybe others have been involved. All the efforts have been made to hear both sides, to untangle the issue and fix it and put it right. But at the end of it all, you're not quite satisfied. It was the right outcome. Maybe you feel you got left with a little bit of blame you didn't really deserve. Maybe the other person doesn't quite seem to have put things all the way right. If the final outcome sits uncomfortably with you, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight on for vindication at all costs? Or will you be willing to take a backward step and say, it's good enough. I'll accept this and I will not hold a grudge. Again, we're not talking about crime here. We're talking about personal disputes. I can't clarify that often enough. And in our personal disputes, it's easy, it's so easy to ruin a relationship because our desire to win overcomes our desire to show the world that we're different. Because we're one family united in Christ Jesus. We're united in the Savior who, when he was cursed answered with blessing. And when he was persecuted, endured it. And when he was slandered, answered kindly. That's what Paul told us about Jesus back in chapter 4. And we are to be like him in our disputes, refusing to take a win-at-all-costs approach. Paul is talking here about the desire that motivates our behavior. And in verses 9 and 10, he lists a whole lot of other sinful behaviors. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual behavior is mentioned several times in that list. And today it's very, very common to talk about sexual orientation. As if our orientation to a certain behavior means that behavior must then be okay. But the Bible does not accept that logic. 
It does not accept that if I feel like doing something, then it can't be wrong. The Bible assumes we will all feel orientations towards various kinds of sin. It might be an orientation towards homosexual sin, or it might be an orientation towards the sin of adultery. It might be an orientation towards the sin of greed, or the sin of drunkenness, or theft, or slander. The Bible does not say, oh, if you have an orientation towards greed, then it must be okay to live a greedy life. If you have an orientation towards sex with people you're not married to, well then, go for it. No, the Bible assumes our orientations are messed up in a whole variety of ways. Our desires have gone wrong in a lot of different directions. They are not what they're supposed to be. And that is as true of the person who wants to win at all costs as it is of the person who wants to commit adultery or the person who wants to have homosexual sex. Our orientations are not to be trusted. Our desires are not to be king in our lives. Sinful desires want to rule us, and they're powerful things. It's easy to believe that we must obey them. But we're not only called to resist them, because people who live that way will not inherit God's kingdom. We're not only called to resist them, we have been given the ability to resist them. After listing the sins in verses 9 and 10, look what Paul says in verse 11. Here's a list of sins, and that is what some of you were. Your lives used to be characterized by those sinful behaviors and patterns, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. The original makes it even more emphatic than that. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you are different people now. Yes, no doubt you still feel the pull of sinful desires. Those old orientations will still come knocking. But Paul wants us to see your life is not defined by your sinful desires anymore. Those are not the most significant things about you anymore. Your life is now defined by what Christ has done. He has washed you. You're clean in God's sight. That old grubbiness is cleansed away. However thick it might have been, he has sanctified you. You've been delivered from a life of slavery to sin. You've been designated as God's child. You have a new holy status. And you've been justified. You're right with God. Because God has declared you to be in the right. You are 
a new person. When we come to Christ, dramatic things happen. We may not feel very, very different. We may not look any different. But big changes have taken place as far as our standing with God is concerned. We are truly not the same people we used to be. And so when our old desires try to dictate to us, we can face them with confidence because their power is broken. They might seem strong, but their all-controlling hold on us is over. As new people in Christ, we have the responsibility and ability to honor God in dealing with our desires. That doesn't mean it's easy to say no to our desires. It's a battle, the New Testament says. But it's a battle we can win. One fight at a time. We can win it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So whatever sinful desires you are battling, battle them in the knowledge you are not what you used to be. Yes, you're not yet what you will be and maybe not what you'd like to be. But by God's grace, you are not what you used to be. And as we finish, let's remember the primary issue Paul is dealing with in this passage. It's not sex in the church. That comes in the next passage. Paul has mentioned sex, but the primary issue here is conflict in the church. And what we have just said applies to conflict in the church. We have to approach that in the knowledge that we are not what we used to be. We will have differences because we think differently and we see things differently. But we have a new ability to resolve our differences. We don't have to give in to that desire to win at all costs. And so maybe our motto used to be never take a backward step. Maybe it used to be don't get mad, get even. Maybe it used to be revenge is a dish best served cold. But we don't live by those kind of mottos anymore because we're not those people anymore. We don't do conflict that way anymore. And when two other brothers and sisters need our help resolving their differences, we don't just stand back and watch, nor do we pick a side and then wade in. No, we pray for the Spirit's wisdom. And in love for both of them, we seek to help them settle their dispute. So before we sing, let's take a moment to consider this quietly. Is there a conflict between you and someone else in the fellowship? Is there something that needs to be put right? Has it reached the stage where communication has broken down between you? 
Do you need to ask for help from another brother or sister? Not to make sure that you win, but to help you and your fellow Christian resolve things in a God-honoring way. Another question, has your desire to win become part of the problem in the disagreement? And if none of this applies directly to you at this moment, will you remember this when disagreement does come? And do you know of someone else who may need your help as they try to honor God in their situation? Let's consider those things quietly and privately for a moment. Pray about them. Asking that God will help all of us live as his washed, sanctified, justified people. Let's do that quietly where we sit. final hymn is a prayer. It's a prayer that God would help us in our new desire to live for him, our new orientation to serve Jesus rather than ourselves. O Lord who came from realms above.